1957, Ghana, country in Africa, gained independence from Britain. And it was a major event. It was one of the first countries in Africa to gain independence. It was so significant that Richard Nixon, who was vice president of the United States at the time, traveled over to Ghana. He went over there to be there for the celebration of independence. And at one point, he was going around shaking everyone's hand and asking, how does it feel to be free? How does it feel to be free? How does it feel to be free? At some point, he happened upon a man who responded, I don't know. I'm from Alabama. (laughs) Richard Nixon had gone to another part of the world to celebrate freedom. But it's obvious that freedom had not fully penetrated his thinking. If he was able to celebrate it in another part of the world while being clueless about what that means right in his own backyard, it was this abstract concept that existed on the fringes of his thinking, but not something that had totally permeated his thinking. And that's what needed to take place, was that that idea of freedom permeate his thinking. What I want to talk about this morning is the idea of missions. And, and when we, we think about missions, is that something that's, that exists on the fringes of our theology? It exists on the edges of our thinking, but we don't really know what does the, the missionaries that are doing in other countries What's the relationship with what they're doing there and what we're doing here? Is there a connection? What is the connection? What role does this God's plan for all nations, where do we see that in the Bible? How does that should be, how should that be shaping our thinking? I think it's accurate to say that in the history of the church, the topic of missions is something that has been somewhat on the fringes of our theology. And it's evidenced by the the very word missionary itself. The word missionary means to send. So when we talk about missions, what we typically do, what we've often done in the history of the church is, which are the passage, what are the passages where we see the verb to send? Or if we see someone being sent, those are the mission passages that, that we look at. And we tend to focus exclusively on those passages. And in fact, we tend to focus even just on one passage. William, William Carey, who in the 18th century is called the father of, of modern missions, was wrote a very influential book, and the book almost exclusively focused on one passage, Matthew 28. Go. Go into all nations. And so that's where we get our, almost exclusively, our theology of missions can come from one passage where we see the disciples being sent. And my question is, is is that an, a good way to do theology? To, to say there's a topic here and we're going to only look at the passages where we see the verb to send. I would argue that we're going to wind up like Richard Nixon and have a doctrine that sort of exists on the fringes of our theology if we do that. I think there's a better way to go about this. What if instead of looking in biblical passages for the verb to send, we looked at the Bible and asked the question, what is God's plan for the nations? In Matthew 28, we see Jesus sending the disciples out to all nations. So let's ask the question, not just where do we see the action of someone being sent, but what is it that, what is God's concern for the nations? 
Where do we see that? And if we begin with that question, I think we find something much more surprising. We see that this idea, God's plan for the nations, takes on a more central role to the whole story of the Bible. And I'm going to do a very fast overview of a few passages here. I'm going to leave numerous passages out, but I do want to pick a few to show that this theme of God's concern for all nations and God's plan for all nations is not just an idea that is that, that we discover in Matthew 28, but it's something pivotal to the whole story of the Bible. If you look, uh, uh, maybe um, it might be difficult to turn to all, all these passages, so I'll, I'll read them quickly. When you look in the Old Testament, we see God's plan to redeem. We see in Genesis 1, God wants Adam and Eve to fill the earth. And after the fall, after they sin, we see, uh, we see God's creation feeling the effects of sin. And in Genesis 12, we see God's plan for redeeming. We see God putting in motion a plan. We see God beginning with Abraham, an event that we, we know is very significant. God calls Abraham and and desires to bless Abraham and to bless his descendants. This is where we, we see the beginnings of the nation of Israel, which is, which is pivotal to understanding the Old Testament. In those passages, God tells Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So when we begin with Abraham, why is God blessing Abraham? Is it because he cared for Abraham, his descendants, and nobody else? Absolutely not. He wanted to bless Abraham and have Abraham be a blessing for all nations. Next I'll read to, I'll read in Deuteronomy chapter 4. After Israel has been brought out of Egypt, they're a nation, God's giving them the law, telling them how he wants them to live. At this point, we can say, okay, this is all about Israel, right? This is not about the nations, because this is all of God's instructions to the nation of Israel. But look at why did God give Israel the, the law? Again, why was God wanting to bless Israel? Deuteronomy 4, verses 5 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. If you obey this, then the other peoples, the other nations are going to see it. And who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So does God want to bless Israel? Absolutely yes. Does God want that blessing to stop with Israel? Absolutely not. The idea is that Israel obeys the law and that that causes other nations to look at Israel and say, wow, that's what happens when a people has that, have that relationship with God and He has revealed Himself to them. That's what happens. Israel was meant to be a light to all nations. Now let me ask, uh, go to another passage in Ezekiel 36. 
What happens when Israel fails to be a light? What happens when Israel, instead of causing the other nations to see how great God is, what happens when they live in such a way that the other nations then mock God? They don't fall down and worship God. They, they ignore Him because of the way Israel has acted. What happens there? In, in Ezekiel 36, I'll begin in verse 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my name. But when they, uh, they profaned my holy name, and that people said of them, These are the people of the Lord. And yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. If we continue, we see, from that we see God sent Israel into exile because they were not being a light to other nations. Other nations were mocking God. And then we see that God's going to bring them back. Why? Not because He only cares about Israel and Israel only, but He doesn't want His His name to be mocked among the nations. He still has a plan for all the nations. And because of that, He's not going to leave Israel abandoned there. So I'm picking just a few instances here where we can look at the very call of Abraham. Look at the giving of the law. We can look at why did Israel go into exile? Why did Israel come back from exile? It's interesting, you read 1 Kings 8, when the temple is dedicated, Solomon goes, he goes on in his prayer several times, God, when the foreigner comes here and prays, I pray that you listen to his prayer. This idea of all nations and God's concern for all nations does not begin in Matthew 28. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And let me read another passage in the New Testament in case you're thinking, is this, is he making too big a deal out of this? Because there's a, there's a whole lot in the Old Testament that is written, uh, that, that seems to have Israel as the focus. So is it really the case that the Old Testament, that, that the dominant theme is God's plan for all nations? It's just that he was working through the nation of Israel. Is that truly an accurate portrayal? In Luke 24, we, we often are familiar with a passage where Jesus is on the road to Emmaus. He talks with the two disciples and he sits down and explains the scriptures to them. And he explains how all of it points to him. We talk about a Christological understanding of the Bible and realizing that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. That's something that, that I've, I've heard that in, in numerous churches. That's not really a, a new idea. Many of you have probably heard that before, that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. There's another element in Luke 24 that we tend to leave out, however. I'll begin in verse 44. This is after Jesus has finished talking with the two disciples, and now he is with his disciples. He says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. So get this. Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. Jesus is going to explain all of it to them. This is what it all points to. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. The Old Testament points to the fact that Jesus had to die and rise again, and this is where we usually miss it, is that second part, and that this be proclaimed in all nations. All, the, the whole Old Testament, all of the Scriptures, they point not just to the fact that Jesus needed to die and rise again, but that that message be preached in all nations. That's what the Old Testament was pointing to. Uh, uh, two, more, or, um, two more quick passages. In Acts 26, I'll read verse 22 and 23. Paul is standing before King Agrippa. And what does he tell him? To this day I have had the help that comes from God, so I stand here testifying, both small and great, saying nothing but the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. I'm not telling you anything more than what Moses and the prophets said. That the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul saying, all I'm doing is teaching what Moses and the prophets said. That is that Jesus had to die and that this needs to be preached to all nations. One final passage of Galatians 3.8. We read, And the Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, Abraham saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. That goes back to that passage in Abraham. So we look at Jesus and Paul. Whenever they were, whenever Jesus was saying, you need to go into all nations, it wasn't because he was starting something new. In fact, it was the logical conclusion of what the whole Old Testament was about. Was that this needs to be preached in all, among all nations. When Paul was out there working tirelessly, he had a theology behind what he was doing. It wasn't just because Jesus said go. It's interesting when you read the book of Acts and there's all these troubles going on with the church wondering, what do we do with all these non-Jews that are coming to Christ? How do we handle this? Nobody ever says, well, listen here, dummy. Jesus said go. Of course, that's what we need to do. They had an entire theology and they keep quoting the Old Testament. Their point is, this is the, all of the Bible has been pointing to this. And I think it's really important for us to see this. Our understanding of God's plan for all nations will suffer the same fate of freedom in Richard Nixon's thought if we, if we only think of missions and God's plan for the one nations, if we only think of one or two passages and view it as something that, yeah, that's one of the things that the church does today. Rather than saying... All of the Bible is pointing to this. We, All of the Bible points to the need for the gospel to be preached amongst all nations. And why is it that we often miss that? I think we often get the idea that the Bible is, is Christocentric. 
It teaches us about who Jesus is. It points to who Jesus is. I think we get that and we understand that. One thing that we miss, though, is that if we say that the Bible is all about Jesus, Christological, to then add the statement that the Bible is all about God's plan for all nations, missiological reading, it's the same thing. We cannot understand the Bible Christologically without understanding it missiologically. It's impossible to pick one or the other. The two must go hand in hand. And I think some of this comes from our misunderstanding of what Jesus' mission really was. In John 17, when Jesus is praying for the disciples and He's sending them out into the world, He says, Father, as, as You sent Me, so I send them. The disciples were participating in the same mission that Jesus had. And I think we struggle with that because, for one, there is a part of Jesus' mission that you and I don't have anything to do with. Jesus came to offer His life as a sacrifice so that He would take our penalty and that we would not have to suffer it. Jesus came to defeat sin and death. Now, what is our role in that? Zero. A big fat zero. It's not that Jesus almost defeated sin and death and that He just needs us to finish it off. Not not the case at all. And it's not that Jesus' payment, His his accepting the penalty we deserved was 99% sufficient. And, And Jesus needs us to do something else just to complete that last 1%. That's not at all what I mean when I say that we participate in the same mission that Jesus had. So if we don't participate in that, what what part do we participate in? You'll notice whenever you read the Gospels, Jesus' mission was broader than just dying and rising again. He wanted people to know about it. If the only thing that was to happen was Jesus to die, rise again, defeat sin, His ministry could have been about a week long. In fact, people wanted to kill Him right at the beginning. He did not have to wait as long as He did. He wanted people to understand what He was doing and I think an illustration of this is if we think of, of a scientist who's working for a cure for a disease, once he finds the cure, we don't say mission accomplished and, and then lock up the cure in a laboratory some way, somewhere. If we found a scientist that did that, we would think, that guy's nuts. Why is he locking it up? The mission is not, is not complete. The mission is to get the cure out to helping sick people. Is it not? And so when we look at what was Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission was to die, rise again, and that that be preached in the entire world amongst all nations. And when we understand Jesus' mission in that way, I think then we can begin to see that, okay, God's mission, God's, and I'm defining God's mission as God's plan to redeem people from all nations. That, that is central to the Bible. That, that, that is a foundational, uh, fundamental element of the Bible. This is not a doctrine that can just simply exist on the fringes of our theology, but this is something that should be driving all of it. And there's, there's another way to look at and make the same point that I've been making. Christopher Wright teaches at a Bible college in England. He has made the observation, or at some point, he switched the class that he taught. He used to always teach a class on the biblical basis for mission. 
or the biblical basis for mission. And, and by that, what he did was he looked in the Bible and, and found the passages that talked about God's plan for all nations. That's what I've been doing. At some point, he said, I began to think about a different question. What if I titled the question instead, the missional basis for the Bible? Not the biblical basis for the missions, but the missional basis for the Bible. Think about this. Would we even have a Bible if God did not have a mission? Would we have letters to the church at Rome or Corinth or the churches in Galatia if God did not have a mission? I don't think we would. Even think about the idea. I have often greatly appreciated writings by, by, by men like John Piper or Jonathan Edwards who say that the Bible is all about God's glory. And I affirm that heartily. I think that is very true and it's something we all, we all often miss. The Bible is about God's glory. But think about this. How is it that God revealed His glory to us? Did, did God give us a philosophical treatise or a systematic theology that just laid out all of His attributes and said God is sovereign? And then we just read a theological treatise on what sovereignty means. Or God is love, and then we read a theological treatise about what love is. How do we know that God is love? Because we have this book that tells about God's mission, and we see that God is loved by how He has acted. How do we know that God is sovereign? The same way, we look at how God has has enacted His mission. That's, That's how we understand who God is and what His glory is. The Bible is not an abstract philosophical treatise, but it's a story that shows our God in mission. And that's something that that we need to recover. And Christopher Wright has also also said, mission is not simply one thing that the Bible talks about with just a little bit more frequency than others. It is what the Bible is about. God's mission, God's plan to redeem people from all nations, is what the Bible is about. That That is the main thing. So, at this point, I want to ask the question. I've been arguing for... The mission of God, God's plan for all nations, as central to our understanding of the Bible. What difference does it make? How does this change our thinking? How does it change the way that that we think about mission or even what takes place in other countries in the church today? What, What are the implications of this for CBC right now, right here and right now? One thing that I think comes from viewing mission as central is that it protects us from the heresy that blessing stops with us. It protects us from the heresy that thinking that blessing stops with us. One of the problems that Israel had in the Old Testament was thinking that God wanted to bless them and only them. Right? I'm reminded of the old comedy with when Chris Rock ran for president and head of state and his opponent would always say, God bless America and no place else. And, and I, I think that that's often maybe what Israel thought. God bless Israel and no place else. And that's why so many were so upset when Jesus began healing people that weren't Jews. They missed it. They thought that blessing was meant to come to them and that it was meant to stop there. Can the same uh, horrendous thinking impact us today in the church? I think it can. 
I think we can think that, well, it's, what, what are we here for? We're, we're here to be blessed, to know God better, to grow closer to Him. Is that true? Absolutely. But there's another step to that. God wants us to know Him better and that, th- that we will then be engaged in His mission. I think too often in the church, we begin with questions of, what are the activities of the church? So if we're going to talk about what's a good doctrine, if someone has a good ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, what's someone with a good doctrine of the church? We often jump to, well, what should a church be doing? And so we'll look at things like church government. How should a church be governed? We'll look at things like the Lord's Supper or worship. How should worship take place? We'll look at things like spiritual gifts. How do people serve in the church? All of the activities of the church. And these are all really good things. These are all essential things to look at. What if we began with a different question, though? What if we began with a question, why does the church exist in the first place? And I'll give you an illustration. What if there was a hospital somewhere, and they began with the question, what are the activities of a hospital? And they began thinking, okay, well, a hospital needs to have staff and doctors that are trained. So one, one activity even begins before the hospital. We gotta, tr- we have to train people. People need to, to be trained. There has to be funding for a hospital to exist. So we have to make sure that, that we have good accounting practices. We, we have to make sure that there's funding so that we have state of the art equipment. We have to make sure that another activity of a hospital is doing things efficiently. So we need to make sure that we schedule staff meetings and, and have all of these activities in a row. And we would say if we looked at a hospital that didn't have these things, we would say, well, that's not a really good hospital. However, what if a hospital did all of those things? They had funding, they had great equipment, they had the best doctors, nurses, staff in the world. They were incredibly efficient, but they never helped any sick people. What would we say about that hospital? Wouldn't we say, man, that's a great hospital. Do you see how how well-trained their doctors are? How professional they carry themselves? Would Would we say that? Or would we not say, they missed the point. They focused on the activities and they forgot the reason why they exist. The reason why a hospital exists in the first place is to help sick people. And if a hospital isn't helping sick people, then... Why is it there? It's, it's missing its, its reason to exist. It has forgotten that. And in saying that, that that's the, the reason why it exists, I'm drawing the analogy here that the reason why the church exists is to be engaged in God's mission, to be a part of being sent into the world and, and being outward focused. When I say that, I'm not at all implying that the other things are less important. So, for example, imagine a hospital that was so excited to help sick people. They said, that's the reason why we exist. We exist to help sick people. And we don't have time to wait for doctors to finish their schooling. We don't have time for nurses to be trained. We need people here right now. What's going to happen to the hospital? In an American context, they're going to get sued. That's what's going to happen. They're going to get sued because they're going to be engaged in mission in a way that's, that's horrible. They're not at all going to achieve their purpose. The same thing will happen in the church 
If the church decides, well, good teachings, you know what? That's not the reason why we exist. We don't exist for good teaching. So we don't have time for that. Or if someone says counseling, making sure that people have good marriages, good families, good interpersonal relationships. We don't have time for that because we exist for an outward focus. If we do that and we ignore all of these other things, then yes, we do understand why we exist and we will engage in God's mission, but we'll do it really poorly. And so that's why all of those other activities are essential. But we always have to get to, to guard against the, the tendency of staying inward focused. The reason why we exist is to be sent into the world. And that's something that, that, that we should never miss. So one difference that I think this, this makes is it protects us from the heresy that blessing was meant to end with us. Instead of seeing, I want to grow closer to God, I want to know the Bible better, I want to remember the Lord's Supper every Sunday, I want to be in good fellowship, I want to pray, I want to do all these things, because if I don't do those things, I can't engage effectively in God's mission. We, we have to make sure we get that last part. Another aspect is... Or another way in which this thinking can can change the way that we do mission today is ask the question, what does it mean if God's plan for all the nations, if the Bible tells us about how to do that task before Matthew 28? Does that change the way that we engage in mission if the Bible talks about it before Matthew 28? before God sends the disciples out. And at this point, I will openly admit that my thinking on this subject is still developing. I would say it's really been in the last year or two that I've begun thinking through this a little more in depth. So bear with me. Some of these thoughts are not fully developed. and But, but I want to get us thinking along those lines. What if we, we don't view missions as the way we've traditionally done it in the church as, well, it's only when the church is sending someone to another country. What if we look at the other parts of the Gospels, the Old Testament, and try to more fully develop our, our understanding of mission, from including those passages? One thing I think that, that changes is we realize that God's mission is everywhere. We see that in the Old Testament, right? God... He, his concern was for all nations, but it was also for Israel. When Jesus sent the disciples out, in a sense, they were all missionaries. So they were all missionaries, and, and yet some of them never left Jerusalem. I think we, we, we realize that mission, being engaged, being sent into the world, is something that the church should be doing everywhere. We have to avoid the, the, the idea of, well, we, we send missionaries to other countries to engage in the world, so we don't necessarily have to do it as much here. That's not true. And in fact, I would argue that your engagement with Dallas or Richardson, Texas, you're engaged in the same mission that we are in Senegal. There, there's, not a, there's not a difference here. It's not like our mission is different from yours. It's just a different part of the world. God's mission is to the entire world. 
I think that's one thing that, that changes the way we, we look at the idea of mission. That yes, we do send missionaries to other countries, but we also engage in mission right here. And actually next week when I preach, that's a, a thought I want to develop a little bit more. Is what does that look like to live as a missionary right here? So, number one, God's mission is everywhere. So here at CBC, there needs to be the same outward focus that any missionary that CBC has in another country has. There needs to be this outward focus. Another is we realize the continuity with Jesus' mission. When Jesus says, Father, as you sent me, so I send them. I think there's a wealth of material in the Gospels, on how to be engaged in God's mission. We are sent in exactly the same way that Jesus was sent. And I think this influences the way that we preach the message. When we think about preaching the Gospel, we have to ask the question, well, how did Jesus do it? So if someone's going to be a missionary, and I know we had to do this before we went to Senegal, World Venture wanted us to read missionary biographies. Read some great biographies about how other people have done it. That can help you learn what they did well, learn from their mistakes. It's a good idea to read missionary biographies. The number one missionary biography we should read, though, is the Gospels. It's about Jesus. Jesus was sent into this world. So how did He do it? And I think this is where we realize that preaching the Gospel can never be just words coming out of my mouth. Preaching the Gospel... And being engaged in God's mission can never be just words coming out of my mouth. Because that's not what Jesus did. He laid down His life. And He was constantly trying to get the disciples to understand this. The disciple is not greater than the teacher. They hated me. They're going to hate you. I'm suffering. I'm calling you to do the same thing. And that that suffering is actually part of preaching the message. The two cannot be separated. And so, one activity we could do is go back this week and read the Gospels and just think through how does this, how does how Jesus engaged in mission influence how I am engaged in mission? We can look at that. Another question, and as I shared, my thinking is, is in process. This last point is where my thinking is the most in process. However, what about the Old Testament? We see that Israel was meant to be a light for all nations. God had a plan for Israel in the Old Testament, did He not? What do we do with the way in which Israel was meant to, to participate in God's mission today? One specific example that I'm really wrestling with right now is what is it that, that God wanted Israel to do? One of the great summary verses we can read in the Old Testament is Micah 6.8, where God wanted Israel to, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before Him. In fact, it's interesting, when you look in the Old Testament, this concern for justice is throughout. It is very dominant, a concern for justice throughout the Old Testament. When we come to the New Testament, if our understanding of God's mission comes exclusively from the book of Acts... I think we're gonna, we're gonna miss something. Again, I'm still working through a lot of this myself, but I think fighting injustice 
is part of being engaged in God's mission. I, I have a hard time seeing how something so uh, fundamental and pivotal in the Old Testament when God's people were engaged in mission somehow disappears today. And it's somehow something that we're not concerned with. Think about that. I'll admit I'm, I'm still wrestling with that myself, but I don't think God's concern or, or God's desire to have a people that, uh, that, that pursues justice, I don't think that value disappears within the church. I think we also should have that value. And, and, and to think about, well, what does it mean? God's mission didn't, be, God's mission began in the Old Testament. One of the big ways in which it, 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 it happened was they lived in such a way that drew people into where Israel was. And I think in the New Testament, in the church, it's not an either or. We're sent out into the world. We're meant to go into all nations. By the way, this is where my hospital analogy breaks down, as every analogy does break down. We're, we're meant to go out into the all nations. But I think we're also continuing that aspect of living in such a way that we're drawing people to us. That we're, we're showing mercy. We're pursuing that. We're fighting injustice. And we're doing those things in such a way that we're not just going out, but we're also drawing people in. And I, I'm, I'm sure some people are thinking at this point, well, this is dangerous though. We're, we're taking the idea of mission... And traditionally, when we talk about, uh, we, we often use the term missions. We put it in the plural because we, we conceive of it as the church is sending people out on different missions. So there's a little bit of, uh, of, of difficulty in language here. But when we think about, um, about God's mission, and, and, and what I'm saying is it's broader than what we've often thought of. It's not just using our mouth to teach the gospel to people in other nations. Or it's not just making disciples, which would be more accurate from the Gospel of Matthew. It's not just that. I'm saying it's broader than that. Our concern should be broader than that. It should it should be not just speaking, but living sacrificially and suffering and following Jesus' example. I'm saying it should involve things like fighting injustice. Is there a danger and broadening our understanding of God's mission? The answer is absolutely yes. And in the 20th century, we saw that. There was a, a, a rediscovery in the 20th century from numerous churches about these other passages in the Bible that talked about God's plan for all nations. And one theme that was discussed in many churches was Missio Dei. The sending of God. They were looking at, well, God was sent. God is a missionary. God has a mission in the world. And unfortunately, an unfortunate side effect of this was a lot of people said, well, if we can do God's mission right here, then we don't need to send people over there. Or people said, well, because we can fight injustice, and that's part of God's mission, we don't need to share the good news about salvation. That happened in a lot of places. And one of the responses was, from the church, was to say, well, that's why we need to restrict it. We need a tighter definition of mission to where it's not as big, because that got us into all these these problems. Once we broaden the understanding, then people began to pick and choose which part of God's mission they wanted to do. One option is to shrink it and keep it smaller. As I read the Bible, though, I don't think that's an option. 
whenever we look at the passages where Jesus is saying all of the Old Testament pointed to God's plan to, for, the, for Jesus to die, rise again, and that that be preached into all nations, biblically, I don't think we can do that. It may be convenient. It may guard us against that danger. But I don't think we can do it biblically. What should we do? How do we fight against that real and legitimate danger? I think we need to recognize the tendency that exists in the church to, for everyone to just pick part of God's mission. We tend to pick the part that we do best, or, or the, the part that we have the biggest heart for, and then we ignore the rest of it. And we, we simply cannot do that. Uh, I've heard people say, well, once you make everything mission, then nothing is mission. And, and that's, I don't know that that criticism is true. I think if someone says, well, we can do God's mission here in Richardson, Texas, therefore we don't need to send someone to another country, I would say that's not true. I would say you're doing part of God's mission. You cannot claim to be engaging the world in Richardson, Texas, and then be claiming to do all of God's mission, because you're not. In the same way, you can't claim to fight injustice somewhere and then say, well, I'm fulfilling God's mission. No, you're doing part of God's mission. And I think that's where my preference would be to to keep it bigger, to realize that God's mission is, is not something very narrow. It's not just one activity that the church is involved in, but it's God's plan throughout the Scriptures. And it's something that should be driving everything we do. And we need to realize that there's a, a, a legitimate danger that we're all going to pick the part that we prefer the most and make that sound as if it's the most important part of God's mission. When in reality, when God gives us commandments, He doesn't give us the option of picking which ones we like. But we have to obey all of it. And so that's one of the areas in which I would love for us to, to wrestle with and think through how do we value all of God's mission even though the reality is we, it's impossible for one church to do everything. We do have to be realistic and realize, especially if you have a small church, they can't do everything in God's mission. But we need to value every aspect of God's mission. And so as I, I draw to a close and, and think about how to conclude this, I think about so many mission or mission sermons the application can often be go. You need to go to other nations or if you're, if God hasn't called you to go, then you need to pray for other missionaries or you need to give. You need to do one of those things. Those are often applications that come at the end of mission, mission sermons. And they're good applications. I have nothing against them. They're great applications. My application that I would leave, leave you with this week, the challenge that I would leave you with though is reflect. This week, reflect on what difference does it make if I read the Bible with God's mission as the central and dominant theme. Too often we, we've, we've run to the verse that says go. It is a dangerous thing to get engaged in an activity without really understanding the theology behind it. I don't know who said it, but I'm reminded of the, the statement, there is nothing quite so practical as good theory. There's nothing quite so practical as good theory. So this week, the the challenge that I would leave us all with is reflect on that. Go back and read through the Bible and see, is this 
is this really the main thing that the Bible is about? And if it is, what difference does that make in, in, in my life and in our church's life? Father, we want to thank you that you have, have redeemed us. We thank you that you have a mission and that you desire to save people from all nations. And we thank you that, that we can participate in that. We, we rejoice in how, how glorious you are and we long and we desire to proclaim your glory in all nations. We pray in your son's name. Amen.